Then the high priest, Elishab, set to work with his fellow priests and rebuilt the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set up its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. And the men of Jericho built next to him, and next to them Zachur, son of Emery, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate, and they laid its beams and set up its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Next to them, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, made repairs. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Barakai, son of Meshezabel, yeah, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Banna, made repairs. Next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Father, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for our time together. And Lord, right now we pray that you open our hearts and minds, that your spirit may speak to us Work in us and transform us more into your image. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. The late rabbi Jonathan Sachs tells a story in his book, To Heal a Fractured World, about his friend, Dr. David Baum. Dr. David Baum was a British, British pediatrician. Dr. Baum was an innovator and a dreamer. And when it came to medicine and care for children, that was his specialty. He developed a silver swaddler, which protected premature babies, and a new way to pasteurize human milk. Dr. Baum created the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health and helped build the first children's hospice center in Britain. And he didn't stop there. He then went to Brazil, Ethiopia, and Thailand to help doctors improve the health care for all children. Dr. Baum would later do work in Moscow, where he would become best friends with Mikhail Gorbachev. Others describe Dr. Baum this way. He would develop an idea, he would find the funding, the people to implement the idea, and then he would move on, taking little personal credit. Dr. Baum would mobilize others to see the need and plight of children, opening their eyes to what needed to be done. Dr. Baum believed, as Rabbi Sachs writes, that we do not redeem the world altogether in one go. We do it one day at a time, one person at a time, one act at a time. And this is the quote that got me. You change a life and you begin to change the world. Our text for today is a doozy of a text. Greg Camp, a few weeks ago, as I was beginning this uh, message series in Nehemiah, sent me this short little video. I'm really looking forward to when you get to Nehemiah 3, Russell, with all those names. I mean, come on, when we get to this chapter, there's a whole lot of just names. It's a whole lot of names in the words of a professor of mine. If you read this chapter, just bless Nehemiah 3 and move on going. I mean, this chapter is the bingo card of Old Testament names. It's got everybody you want. Nehemiah 3 is a list of all who worked on this restoration project of Jerusalem. The list consists, as you probably read this week, of priests, Levites, temple servants, rulers and administrators, goldsmiths, perfumers, and other merchants. They, along with others whose occupations were not known, are in the text. And one by one, Nehemiah details who was involved and where they are involved in this restoration project. 
One by one, individual and individual families work on their section of Jerusalem. And so when we get to Nehemiah 3, what do we do? What do we do with all these, all these names? What do we do with all these occupations? It's, I think it's a subtle reminder to us that, that Nehemiah couldn't just call a general contractor. He couldn't just call a general contractor and bid out the project and, and then wait for its completion. That, that's what you and I might do, right? And for some of you in here who I know really good at DIY projects, that may be what you do. You just do it yourself. But Nehemiah didn't have that luxury. He didn't have that choice with this project. He had to, as it tells us in Nehemiah 2.20, he had to trust that the God of heaven will give us success. And he also had to trust a whole bunch of just people. A group of people. Some good with their hands and some who had never picked up a hammer a day in their life. Nehemiah had those in power working alongside those who had no power. And just in case you might think this is a male-only endeavor, you know, only the guys got involved. No, Nehemiah 3.12 tells us this, that, that Shalom, son of house, whatever that guy's name is, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, get this, made repairs. He and his who? Daughters. So just in case you would think the guys... Nehemiah's like, oh, no, 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 no. The daughters got involved, too. The women were working alongside men to restore Jerusalem. Priests were involved, as we read at the beginning. And Levites didn't exempt themselves either, as Nehemiah tells us in 3.17. Levites got involved. Nehemiah makes sure that we see this. It took the whole community coming together to get this thing done. All different people coming from different backgrounds and different places. Strangers coming together, rebuilding and restoring their area. And I want you to think about, think about that just for a second. I mean, this is something, folks. One neighborhood by one neighborhood, one person by one person, slowly, together, began to work towards the common goal of restoring Jerusalem. One at a time. One area at a time, each doing what they could do to make Jerusalem a better place than it was just a few days ago. Each doing what they could do in their own neighborhoods as the neighborhoods next to them did the exact same thing. And this is the, this is the difficulty when I read this. Sometimes, and I don't know if you, you may not agree with this, but sometimes there are projects that just seem impossible. I mean, the scope of the project feels too big to wrap your head around. Anybody ever had that? Like, you look at it, and you just, you can't imagine doing it. And, and every time I read Nehemiah, I think we come to a point where I can imagine the people, as they began to return to Jerusalem, as they saw what was once this great city, and they begin to look at the, the walls and what, the disrepair they were in, that, that the project was just beyond their comprehension. You know, at some point, we can imagine that they just got used to the rubble. They just got used to the ruin. You know, they, they made their own paths around the rubble. They, they, they kicked some dirt out of the way. They moved some rocks out of the way. And, and, and maybe a, a place or two, you know, might clean up their area just a little bit. But, but the project was just too big. And there was really little motivation to do anything. It's just kind of that idea of, well, this is just how it's going to be. And we read Nehemiah, we realize it took someone that could see beyond the rubble. It took someone that could see that if everyone focused on their part of their neighborhood, and instead of worrying about what was happening over there 
or if this neighborhood began their work on their area and, and what that neighborhood was doing, if everyone just focused in their area, then before you know it, a wall was being built. But it starts with this, with one neighborhood at a time, with one person at a time, with one group at a time, in their time, in their place. Because it's really easy to become overwhelmed by everything that we see in here. It's really easy to become overwhelmed by projects that just feel impossible. And let's be honest, in our time and place, and in our days that we live in, we look around and all we see is rubble and chaos. It's, it, it's become this point in, in society where I think we thrive on chaos. Like, I think we just, we need it for the dopamine hit. Like, we need chaos. To, we need somebody to be upset about. And, and for us, as we read this, it can become overwhelming. We look at it and we think, this is a project that cannot be fixed. This is, this is beyond my comprehension of how to fix this. And, it, and, and, and to give you a little insight about myself and chaos, there are two things I hate more than anything in this world. Surprises, okay? Surprise parties stink. And chaos. I don't like chaos. I like rhythm. I like knowing where everything is. And if you know me, you know that if I have, if there's a surprise or if there's chaos, I will shut down. I will. I mean, I have friends who have seen it. I will absolutely shut down if there's something that feels chaotic that, that I can't control, that I can't take care of. So when I think about a wall and a, rubble and a city of rubble and chaos, everything in me when I read Nehemiah just wants to shut down. Because right now at our house, we're doing some renovations, and, and for me, it's just hard. I can't see the finished product because all I see is dust on the ground. All I see is drywall being pulled out and studs out. All I see is like a bathroom with no toilet and nothing else in it. Like, like what am I supposed to do with that? Right? And I'm looking at this going, and, and I tell Laurie, I'm like, this is never going to be finished. We are going to live our lives with no drywall and no bathrooms. That's what I do. I shut down. I go negative. But then there's my wife. There's my wife who can look at this. She can look at this and one by one look at a room and go, look at the paint. Not pink anymore. Look at the paint. Do you see what they did here? Isn't that cool? Imagine what they're going to do to the next room. And, and she's, she slowly gets me to, like, instead of looking at the big, vast, just chaotic area of renovation, look at this room and look what they did, Russ. Oh, yeah, yeah, I see that. Now imagine what they're going to do to the next room. And I'm like, well, can they do it yesterday? She's like, no, but they'll get there. And what she does is it, it takes away from the vastness of the chaos, and she shows me the goodness of a finished area. And says, it'll happen, you know, we'll get to the next one, they'll get to the next one, and then they'll get to the next one. And as we read the text in Nehemiah 3, I can't help but notice that that's going on in Jerusalem. That's what Nehemiah is doing here. Nehemiah gets the people to get beyond the vastness of the chaos, and instead focus on their part of their neighborhood. And now the project goes from this really big, really impossible kind of thing, to a smaller kind of manageable idea. And sometimes I think we need to see 
life in those terms. I think sometimes we see life in this kind of big thing. We see the world and everything going on in it, and we think there is nothing I can do. It's too big a problem for someone like me to do anything. It's easy to get disillusioned by the chaos around us to the point where we just want to shut down. We don't want to do anything. It's even easy to get hostile to the idea of being able to do anything. So what we do is we huddle up in our own enclaves and we watch the world burn. And we're like, well, good luck, world. But that's not what's going on here. There's this old adage, and I know you guys have heard of it. There's only one way to eat an elephant, and how do you do it? One bite at a time, right? Well, there's a Jewish adage that goes this way. The word is tikkun olam. It's the Hebrew word for mending or perfecting the world. It's an idea in Judaism that's not based in, in any of the formulaic law codes. And, you know, those laws that we read in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Uh, it, what it means is that this isn't rooted in this kind of uh, uh, formulaic law, which is very static. You know, it goes from one generation to the next, the exact same thing. Instead, this word tikkun olam is dynamic. It, it's a word uh, that means that, it, uh, that, that God is a continual moving through time, looking to mend and perfect the world as we go through our time and place. And in the words of one rabbi, it's an expression of the faith that it is no accident, get this, that we are here in this time and place with our gifts and capacities, and that this is an opportunity for us to make a positive effect on the world. Tikkun is mending and perfecting the world one day at a time, one person at a time, one area at a time. And I think we can all agree with this, that God has called us to this time and place for a reason. We are here in Grapevine, in our neighborhoods, in the specific places for a reason. And here's the thing. We can't do everything to the world. We can't just fix the world. We can't fix the actual world around us, but we can fix our worlds. We can be menders and perfectors of our neighborhoods. We can be good neighbors. I could swear I've heard Jesus talk about that before. You can be a good neighbor. Maybe it's you helping out in the school down the street with the kids. Maybe it's you serving in the local hospital. How can you take care of people? Maybe it's you helping out in different ways and places in different areas. Maybe it's helping out at a food pantry. Maybe it's just seeing what somebody needs in your neighborhood. But, but Tick and Olam is this idea that one neighborhood, one person at a time, in your time and place. Paul says something about this in 1 Corinthians 12. We've all been given gifts, he says. So let's allow the gifts that have been given to be used in their time and place. We are all part of mending the world, one area at a time, one person at a time. It's almost like Nehemiah is showing what can happen when a group of people begin to think this way. Their area, their neighborhood, that's all. That's all Nehemiah is asking. Do your section, 
your place. And in fact, he goes on later in, in Nehemiah 3 and says, there are some people who literally would just walk across the street from their house and begin repairing their little section of the wall right across the street from their house. Why? It's what they could do. Their area, mending that part of the world that they could affect. Just focus on restoring that part of your world. Not the world, but your world. And then look what can happen. It can become contagious. Others begin to take part in their world. Restoring what they can restore. Doing what they can do to bring good news to their area. And I think that's it. I think each of us in here today have been given the tools necessary to bring about Tikkunolam. All of us have been given gifts to bring about the repairing of the world. I know it's not the whole world, and I know there are some of you in here who dream big. We can fix the whole world. And all i got to say is maybe today we fix our part of the world. Maybe each of us, one person, one family, one community, can change the life of the world, can begin to repair. To put it another way, you've got the necessary gifts to bring heaven to earth. You have the necessary gifts to bring restoration. You all in here do. I know you. You've got gifts. Nehemiah 3 reminds us that it's all about the community taking responsibility for their spot. He didn't say they went over here, then they went over here. No, it's this idea that they took care of theirs. And then the next one took care of theirs. And then the next one took care of theirs. They didn't worry about what was going on over there. They took care of theirs. How can I restore my part of my world in this moment? I mean, let's be honest. The world is in chaos. There is still chaos, destruction, despair, and those who abuse power. Therefore, we're reminded that our work is not done. And so I go back to this quote. You change a life and you begin to change the world. Did you catch that? You change one life. Not telling you a whole bunch of lives. I'm telling you today you change one life. You change your part of your world. You're a restorer in your neighborhood. You're a restorer in your workplace and your time and space. You do that and you slowly begin to change the world. Instead of being overwhelmed by the vastness of the chaos. Instead, let's make it manageable. It's almost what Nehemiah said. Let's make it manageable. And then as that wall gets put up, the next wall gets put up, we begin to see, ah, we can do this. That, I think, is the story of Nehemiah 3. It's the story of our call into the restoring of the world with God to bring restoration. Each person not doing too much, but doing what they can do to live the life of faith to know that that is what God's called us to do. I'm always reminded when I read the Gospels, when you read the story of Jesus, it's, it's one of those things that you ever notice as you read it, Jesus, I mean, minus doing the Sermon on the Mount, right, which is huge, big, big sermon. Minus that, Jesus is with one person, speaking to him or her, healing him or her, and then goes and walks down the road and runs into another person does what he does with them walks down the road a little bit before before you know it he's sitting at a table eating with a group of people right sitting at a table in someone's house doing his thing and then we go down to the next one and the next one and before you know it what happens jesus is just this part of the world mending what needs to be mend 
right in front of him. Something happens, something happens, and then you have this wave go on, right? You know, that's what we begin to notice here, and I think that's what we're called to today. What can you do in your part of your world? How can you be a restorer in your part of your world? What neighbor needs help? What volunteer is a school looking for? What volunteers are needed at local pantries? Who needs someone just to be the hands and feet of Jesus right in front of you? And Nehemiah says, that's what I'm calling you to be. The world's big, but your world is small. What can you do for that? And that's what we're called to do. Tikkunolam, just mending the world in our time and place. And before you know it, the community is built up. I think that's our call in Nehemiah 3. So I'm wondering today, where, where, where can you do? Where can you get your hands dirty a little bit? Yeah, you may not be good with a hammer, but you may be really good with a book. You may not be good with a saw, but you're good with numbers. Hey, by the way, it's tax season. I'm sure there's some people who need help with their taxes. But all of that is there for you to do. When we talk about this idea of who's your one, this is it. Who's your one is not thinking big. It's thinking, who's your one right in front of you where you can be a mender and a restorer? Because as, as we're reminded last week, Jesus is our one. Jesus has said, you're my one. He's called on us. He's called us to come to him. And now we're doing the same thing, going out and being menders to the world. I wish I could say it's simple, but it's not. It takes effort. But it's not as hard as you think. If you have any needs this morning, come now as we stand and as we sing.